It's radio theater for your soul. It's radio theater for your soul. With storytellers gather around the mic. Come on, let's go. Live readings, traditional, contemporary, original, scripted plays, film, and poetry. With storytellers gather around the mic to be with your host, Miss Shanice C.L. Coleman, a.k.a. Courageous Love, always just a cut above. Yeah. Soul audience, thank you so much for tuning in and welcome to season seven of my radio show. My name is Shani C.L. Coleman, also known as Courageous Love, and I am your host who will be gathering with the storytellers around the mic weekly. Storytelling is a gift. It is meant to be shared, and our mission is to continue to provide a global stage for storytellers of all genres of storytelling. Even from the subways of New York City, you're listening to Radio Theater for Your Soul. So, does anyone want to know what Radio Theater for Your Soul is really all about? Yeah, tell us what is Radio Theater for Your Soul. You want to know what it's about? Oh, yes. Tell me. I'll tell you. In a nutshell, it is all about storytelling and storytellers featuring voices, unique voices, the written and or unwritten words during this broadcast, podcast, episode, show, whatever you prefer to call it. I call it internet radio, our global stage, as mentioned earlier, our gathering place around the mic that virtually replaces the baobab tree, where all kind of stories continue to be shared. So please stay tuned. You're listening to Radio Theater for Your Soul, where storytellers gather around the mic. Gathering around the mic to share their voice is another great featured storyteller with another great story. Enjoy! Hello, my name is Mark Ridley, and I would like to entitle my little talk, Path to Now. As I said, uh, my name is Mark, and I come from Ann Arbor, Michigan, the middle child of three children. My parents uh, both musically inspired and taught us well about music. Music. 
We played, we sang. I played trumpet and saxophone. With my family, we traveled all over the country. As a little child, playing with some very uh, high-profile jazz and uh, other type of musicians. People never really believed that we were actually, we could read music. But my father taught me how to read and write music at a very early age. We would stand on the stage on Apple boxes so we could reach the microphone. And we'd play with some very big jazz artists in various venues around the country. This started my life of entertainment. And although I did not know that at the time, um, it would expand my knowledge of life, music, the general business of entertainment. I was a curious child growing up and always was looking to see what it was that I make things work, that, uh, uh, you know, trucks, cars, and my curiosity peaked, I guess, um, when I was around two, when I slid underneath the dress of my mother's best friend because of her dress was blowing up and I somehow had to see why was her dress billowing out like that in the fan and what was underneath it. To my mother's dismay and surprise, I was dragged out from underneath <laughs> my mother's friend gazing upward at what she wore as undies. I'll never forget that. This was, my, this was really crazy. My mother was extremely embarrassed. And uh, <laughs> maybe that started my inquisitiveness with the ladies at that time. So uh, moving forward from that, I uh, took an interest in typing. My father had a very old typewriter. And I used to watch him load up the paper with the ink and uh, watch him type. And he would let me do it. So one day I decided with my sister that we were going to write a newspaper. So we really didn't have the proper type of you know paper. But there was a little place next door that um, would put um, newspaper together for a local community. And the guy would let us take all the paper we wanted. So we folded it up, put it in my father's typewriter, and we created the little local community newspaper, which was kind of fun at the time. And um, it was one of those things where, you know, you had to think about your recipes, what you wanted to write, um, some social story or the news. But I did not until much, much later realize that that little act probably crafted to where I am today. So, also my mother participated in that. My mother was a college uh, professor. And when I was, you know, about 14, 13 to 14, I became very socially aware, consciously aware of life more. I had actually started that earlier, listening to my father, um, you know, listen to the radio, and you hear the news, social uh, challenges, disparages uh, with black people, 
and I would hear how the news would use accounts of crime, and they would always identify when it was a crime at that time, whether it was a black person, and they would never say whether it was a white person. And I learned the psychological game very, very early that words matter and how they manipulate people into thinking certain ways. And it was beginning to, you know, be ingrained in me at a very early age how racism was going in this country. My parents, you know, spoke of it, the injustices. Um, he would talk about the job he used to have and um, the disparities along those lines. Watching and listening to Dr. King, the marchers, and then finally, Dr. King and Bobby Kennedy being killed. It awoke my, my spirit up, and it made me angry. And I wrote an expose about the Black Panthers, who I was beginning to really idolize. I liked their strength, what they stood for, the, the humanitarian position that they wanted to help better their community, feed the children. And I watched how they went about in silence often with the black leathers and, and their ideology and their philosophy. It intrigued me. And my mother let my creative juices fly and let me write what I chose my words to say. She looked at it. She never edited it and allowed me to print it up and disperse it at the local college. I was so thrilled. I was so happy that she did that. I wish I could retain a copy of that writing today, and it, it would do my heart good, but I don't know where it is. Um, but that woke up my spirit, and I think I became what you call a silent activist. It was not planned, but it was molded somehow inside of me. I began to see that I was that person that sought knowledge, did a little digger. Um, I didn't accept just everybody's ideas of the traditional things. I questioned the Bible. I questioned um, methods of religion. I quietly did that. Uh, you know, you could do too much of that <laughs> with your parents. You know, they're very Christian. I was raised in that kind of environment, believing God. Yeah, there was white Jesus on the wall, but I always questioned that because it didn't seem logical to me that this white guy on the world that uh, supposedly loved everyone and was on every wall in most homes in America could be such a cruel guy and allow so many things to be unjust. But of course, that was just, you know, my thoughts at the time. They're not well-rounded, informed. But it started something in me. And I, I think that the rebel began to form. The resistor, my spirit. And I did want to change the world. When I was young, I pretended a lot. And my sister, I pretended that we were very, we were cops. I was Tim, she was Jim. <laughs> and we 
Of course, we had to have money. We had the yachts and all the motorcycles and jeeps. And uh, we did undercover investigations. And we did this for several years when we were young. But that also helped me to formulate the idea of law enforcement in my head. And as we travel around the country, I would look at uh, the various police departments and envision myself being a police officer. Well, that dream actually came true. And I became a police officer in a certain city uh, in the Midwest, far, far away from home. Um, the only black police officer in the city. I don't talk about that too much. It's kind of a private thing, but I guess it's out now. But I became that officer of the law, completing the academy, going on to do investigative duties, undercover work, etc. It was quite thrilling, but it wasn't enough. And working for a department allowed me to see the back-end story and the psychological things that happen to police officers, their, their thought process, um, the bigotry, the ingrained indifference, the braggadociousness of how a lot of police officers felt. Truly, it was sad. And the lies and, and the, you know, the manipulations. That there was, um, it was difficult. It saddened me. And I couldn't do it anymore. And I quit. But there was also another spark that had taken off in my life. It was the spark of being a model. Having seen one black man in particular with a very thick mustache that people begin to say that I kind of favored and watching him model for Ebony Fashion Fair. And I wanted so bad to try this. I said, I can do this. And I would get in front of the mirror and I would practice my turns and poses, and get all the GQ magazines, Ebony magazines, Essence, Jet, and pose in front of the mirror until one day I made a decision that I was going to try it. And there was a modern agency that allowed me that very opportunity. And I recall my very first show. It was thrilling. I was nervous. But to walk out on the stage and people are cheering and screaming at you. <laughs> and you're walking, doing your turns. You're walking with other people and showing your fashions. It, it was really exciting. And it hooked me. Yes, it did. It hooked me so much so that I really took serious the challenge of being a top model. Simon, one of the biggest agencies in the world, and actually made a career out of print work, modeling. Fashions, which then kind of moved me in toward commercials, which was another area that I had no knowledge of or particular interest in. But seeing how things kind of played out hand in hand, it was a natural way for me to just progress and continue that path forward.
So I did. I started doing commercials. Um, later, I, I started working in the theater, doing small plays. Acting came along. Actually, my first film was when I was 20. And at the time, I was still a police officer. But um, those things naturally start taking hold. You, you, you gain a different kind of community. Um, I, I said, well, I want to become an actor and a good actor, so I need to go to school. I need to study. So I did the craft, so I started studying under various uh, tutors and various acting classes and coaches. So that would become more proficient. I studied with Johnny Depp. He and I went to the same acting class for about a year together. And as you know, his story has been amazing. So this infused my thinking along the way. I started thinking, well, you know, maybe, maybe I too could create. And it wasn't a serious thought, but it was a fun, fleeting thought for a while. And I decided that I would do something in little skits along the way. And I began to um, write and record. By you know, back then you had the HD cameras, and uh, they were a little bit of a clunky thing, but it was still cool to have. You could get some, put together some pretty good projects and images. So in my home, I, I would uh, record and I would do fake commercials, many of them, to try to better myself for the process of when I, you know, in an audition. And I was putting these commercials together, and then I started writing skits and, you know, doing funny things. Now, I never thought I was a funny guy. In fact, I turned down roles that had to do with comedy. Um, silly. <laughs> I wish I hadn't. But I, I was going getting called out quite a bit to audition for uh, sitcoms. And, and I did not see myself as the funny guy. I saw myself as the serious actor. That was, a, that was a really mistake on my part. Um, but something made my brain, you know, respond to that. And uh, it, was it was not until much later that I decided that, hey, dude, you do have some funny in you. And I, and I didn't know that. And when I thought back, again, as a child, that I was the family clown. I was the one making everybody laugh at home. But it didn't, you know, it didn't hit me that way until my father asked me one day, he says, you know, you're just going to be the class clown, you Mr. Funny Man, all your life. He wanted me to be real serious. He was very serious, and he wanted me to be thoughtful. And I guess in his life, coming from where he was raised, he did not want to see a black buffoon. So I respected him for that. I understand that, you know. But it was not to be denied until I kept writing, began to do these skits, and uh, actually produced a one-hour comedy show. It was my first. I was pretty proud of it. I got a lot of my friends involved, and uh, we actually produced it and got it up and put it out there. And I was quite surprised at the reaction that I got. Then I said, well, maybe I can do stand-up, which is a whole other game. But I gave it a shot. And my first stand-up, a guy everybody probably knows, Michael Collier, 
allowed me to have my three first minutes on stage. Disastrously, <laughs> I might say. But actually, it wasn't so bad. It wasn't so bad. It, it was nerve-wracking to be able to stand in front of people and try to make them laugh for three short minutes. Um, but I did it. And I found out I didn't die, you know. But it uh, made me challenge myself further. And over the time and years past, I've really begun to get into it and trust myself to write and calm your nerves and get up on that stage. So I would uh, do open mics all over the city until I became more proficient and watched the great people before me that mastered the skill. But all was not lost. Because, you know, in this city, in, in this, um, the way this works, you build connections, you build um, friendships, and you start learning, and you get invited to this event and this event until you begin to understand your creative nature is one that melts into others. And those invitations got me going to what we call table reads, where you learn to, you know, um, horn in on your talents, listen to other people read, and watch their inflections. And this, this created, for me, a stronger belief in my ability that I could do certain things, that I had challenges with or, or thought I couldn't. So um, I set up a really big show and I was prepared to do this show with other um, comedians. And then tragically, I lost my mom. Yeah, it would, it would be a devastating time in my life because I had already lost my father years prior. And I know that that also was devastating. I know he was sick. He, he was... I knew he was going to pass. I was allowed time with him. I didn't expect my mother to pass. So that hit me pretty hard. And I couldn't, it, it, it kind of took my funny away. I canceled the show, and I just couldn't do it. It was a long time before I ventured back on the stage. And I think by then my, my thought process had changed. I wasn't so sure that comedy was the way for me to go. I didn't really want to invest the time because of the fact that I thought it was a lot of night work, you know, and um, you're in clubs, you're hitting these auditions, and you're going to try to do these stand-up open mics. And I thought that uh, maybe that's something a little bit different for me I should be doing. And I really began to dig into my writing, it found that that filled a gap. I could express myself, my thoughts, my feelings on paper. And then the day came where I decided I'm going to write a film. And it was a comedy film with some value to it. My very first comedy film. Uh, very first film, period. It was called Dog Training. And I wrote it. I funded it 
with a friend of mine who blessed me with the rest of the money that I did not have. And we shot this film, a short uh, 15-minute film. And considering I had never produced, directed before, other than, you know, my little skits, it came out pretty good. I was pretty proud of it. And uh, it was the kind of film that challenges the thought process between men and women and how women see men. And uh, it was kind of uh, kind of fun. It, today, it's still out there. It's I don't keep it visible so much because I don't I don't claim the music to it. Um, so I don't have the rights to the music. But <clears throat> as a first film, it was really something for me to really believe in and see. You can do this. And I began to get serious about it and start writing which brought me to my first feature film. After writing several shorts and producing a dramatic short film, which won me the best film at the film festivals called Stolen Breath. It's about a young boy that has committed suicide. I partnered up with some of the suicide people and used them in the film to uh, tell the story and let people know that there was help available. And that film there got me to where I am today, where I decided to write conscious material, narratives that spoke to human conditions, spoke to um, the things that are happening in this world. I want to make people feel, I want to make people see themselves in the light that others may not see them, people that are judged incorrectly. Uh, what's going on behind the eyes of a person, the mind and soul? And I, I want to put that on paper. So I wrote the sequel, if you will, to this film, which is a feature film called Stolen Breath, The Truth Revealed. And this film has touched a lot of people over the last few years. It became an award-winning film. I was blessed to be nominated with the very famous and positive, so great filmmaker Spike Lee with my film. And just being on the same page, name-wise, really just did my soul, my heart good. And I said, this is, this is my path. This is where I'm intended to be. This is where I'm supposed to go. And now I'm a writer. I write scripts. I write all the time. Um, I try to encourage other writers. I've mentored writers. I've mentored filmmakers um, that are coming up and they want to, to try their hand at it. And I will say, that for me, the path to where I am now educated me and brought me to this moment in my life where I feel that this is where I will do and take my sunset rest. Writing, telling stories that captured 
your imagination, the world's thoughts, um, the things that I believe in to shake up the status quo because you have to be different. You can't do the same thing. I'm not the kind of writer that wants to write just the same old thing. I want to I wanna move you. I want you to believe in the story that you read. I want to make films that are a little bit different than maybe you might expect. And it's something that I'm passionate about. I hope you follow me along the way and um, think about your own success. Think about the things you want to do. Don't back away from it. Face it. Try your hand. And believe in yourself. It's the most important thing. Believe that you can do it. And don't forget to put that uh, vision board up there. Because that vision board helped me. In a lot of my ways, I've been in business also. Using that vis vision board, I saw what I wanted. I pursued it. Never doubt yourself. So I'm sending my, my love to everyone that hears my voice. I hope I haven't bored you to death. And keep dreaming. You know, I'm accepting all your blessings back that you're sending me right now. I feel it. And the story has not been concluded. So this right now is Mark Ridley. Thank you for listening. Have a wonderful, wonderful day. You're listening to Radio Theater for Your Soul with your host, Shanice C.L. Coleman. Thank you to featured storyteller, Mr. Mark E. Ridley. You just heard some of his story. He is an award-winning actor, writer, director, filmmaker, also a top model, and a family man who is unstoppable and driven. In fact, his motto is unstoppable and driven. You can contact him via his website, www.iammarkeridley.com. Ridley is spelled R-I-D-L-E-Y. Or you can follow him at Mark E. Ridley on Facebook, Twitter, and or Instagram. Now, if you missed any part of his story titled Path to Now, please go back and listen anytime wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also listen on our website at radiogathering.wixsite.com slash radiogathering. And please follow us at Radio Gathering on Facebook, Twitter, and or Instagram. Listeners, this is Season 7 here at Radio Theater for Your Soul. And the focus is solely on the stories being told during this Spring Series 2022. We're trying something different, so there's no interview segment with the storytellers as in previous episodes. However... The interviews may return in the future, but in the meantime, I encourage you to connect with the featured storyteller via their requested form of contact or via Radio Theater for Your Soul. And finally, 
I sign off weekly with a poem or what I call a poetic offering. Always seeking the very best. The best is one thinks is best for himself, I guess. Never settling for less. Less is what one thinks is less for himself, I guess. Presented life's test, tumultuous often is the quest. At times wanting to lay down and rest. At first full of zeal and zest, seeking goals and dreams, east and west. Knowing one must enjoy the path, stress, strife, and all the rest. Realize with gratitude, patience, and lovingly finally beating our chest. On my quest, always seeking my best, passing life's tests, refusing to lay down and rest, staying positive, strong in mind, nothing less. My ancestors, the teachers of focus and grace, watch as I finish the race. That poetic offering is titled, On My Quest. On My Quest. All right. Written and read by my mother, Doris Coleman. Yay! I get it from my mother. (laughs) This is Radio Theater for Your Soul, where storytellers gather around the mic. I am your host, Shani C.L. Coleman, also known as Courageous Love. A big thank you to God, family, friends, ancestors, and you, the listening audience. I so appreciate it. It's radio theater for your soul. It's radio theater for your soul. With storytellers gather around the mic. Come on, let's go. Live readings, traditional, contemporary, original, scripted plays, film, and poetry. With storytellers gather around the mic to be with your host. Miss Shanice C.L. Coleman, a.k.a. Courageous Love, always just a cut above, yeah. Radio Theater for your soul, it's Radio Theater for your soul, yeah. Where storytellers gather round the night, storytellers, where storytellers gather 